You're listening to Lies and Half-Truths, tales written and performed by A.P. Weber. Not long ago, in a professional setting, mind you, someone said to me, so I hear you've been playing a little bit of Dungeons and Dragons, to which I replied, uh, no. I haven't been playing a little bit of Dungeons and Dragons. I've been playing a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. I don't work there anymore. I guess it was inevitable that this make-pretend game would worm its way into my creative work. Now, I know there's nothing more annoying than listening to someone recount what happened to their half-orc, multi-classed ranger-slash-barbarian during their battle with a wyvern or whatever. It ranks somewhere above hearing about someone's dream, but just barely. Don't worry, this isn't that. You see, I started reading Jack Vance, Robert E. Howard, and most especially, Fritz Lieber. Fritz Lieber. I don't know. These guys were some of the most influential pulp writers when it came to the development of D&D's aesthetic. And they're pretty great if you're into that sort of thing, which I am. So obviously, I had to try my hand at writing pulp-inspired fantasy. And I kind of like how it turned out. This episode is just the first of an epic seven-part story. It's got treasure hunting, evocative fantastical locations, dungeon delving, riddles, and monsters. I think you'll like it. And now, part one of Cascade Rock. In the age of the immortal emperor Perennius Zet, when the gods of old slept indolent in their forgotten temples and the children of men emerged as the rulers of the earth, venturing forth from their fortified cities into the wilderness to claim the wonders of a more ancient world, only to recede again before the eerie and terrible things that lurked in the secret places of the frontier. During that fleeting millennia, the Halfkin also roamed the world, though fewer in number and hard-pressed by civilization. Halfkin are remembered little now. They were a strange folk, banded travelers, practitioners of magic, and keepers of lore reputed to be tricksters, swindlers, and boogeymen by those who knew little about them, or knew them too well. In most ways, they looked no different than common folk, except that each exhibited at least one uncanny feature. It was said that they represented the last of the fey blood on earth, although intermingled with that of men. Easily, one can imagine the fairy prince who seduced a wayward maid, or the mountain man who fell in love with a bugbear, or the myriad unions that came out of the ancient commerce mankind once had with rich mountain dwarves. And sadly, one can imagine more sinister scenarios. 
Legend tells of the offspring of these queer unions, harried by the rise of mankind, banding together and, for many generations, marrying amongst themselves till the bloodline of a half-elf or half-orc was so obscured as to be irrelevant. Indeed, even half-kin siblings might present drastically different fey characteristics, one from the other, so that the uninitiated man or woman would perceive not that they were related. Such was the case for Ven and his brother, Darl. Darl, the younger of the two, took after his mother. He stood a head above most men, broad-shouldered and knotted with tough muscle. These features were striking enough, but what set him apart from other men was his prodigious underbite that suggested the large lower incisors which would emerge almost as tusks when he grinned mirthfully or gritted his teeth in malice. Incidentally, Darl's temperament was such that both expressions appeared frequently upon his face. The tusks, however, were not the most peculiar thing about him. Darl was pale, but whereas common pale skin flushes pink, his would flush a conspicuous yellow-green. Then, on the other hand, was somewhat shorter than an average man and slight in frame. He wore his hair shaggy to cover the pointed tips of his ears. Large, somber eyes peered out from behind the tousled locks hanging over his brow. His skin was brown as fresh-tilled earth, undertoned with the red of a great pine. He looked a youth, save for those eyes of his, which, even when he smiled, never failed to convey solemnity and the many griefs of a long life. At the outset of this present tale, the pair had not seen each other since the summer passed when their band of a dozen or so wagons and as many Hafkin families left Darl behind to sleep off his hangover, confined to the stocks in some village or other. Their mother had spoken to the magistrate, no doubt having paid a bribe or threatened a curse in order to ensure her boy's safety, then moved the wagon train on at sunrise, leaving word that Darl should catch up with them once his sentence was served. This was not an uncommon occurrence, for Darl's temperament swung wildly and his appetites were large. For the better part of the next year, the band had received only passing word from Darl through other Hafkin travelers. Instead, the Hafkins they encountered on the road spoke chiefly of the alarming activities of Baron Redway, wearer of the eldritch crown of teeth, and his chief lieutenant, Lord Herath. What farms they had burned, frontier forts they sacked, and in what direction their marauders were marching next. Towns the Hafkin often relied on for trade and commerce were suddenly filled up with refugees from the Baron's mayhem. Little tolerance or charity was left for strangers so strange as the Hafkin. And so that year was a hard one for Ven and his band, edged out and unable to engage in any honest form of gainful employment. Instead, they were forced to perform the odd con, swindle, or smash and grab just to make ends meet, all the while staying as far from the dreaded Lord of Teeth as they possibly could. Increasingly, as the year wore on and word of Darl ceased, Ven and his mother began to fear for his safety in all this chaos. Then, in mid-spring, 
then received a handwritten letter from his brother urging him to convince their mother to bring the band to Cascade Rock with all haste or, if mother was not willing, to come alone. This irked Ven terribly. A journey to Cascade Rock would mean plunging deeper into the wild frontier so harried by Baron Redway's forces. But they had little prospects elsewhere, and such a summons would almost certainly mean a unique opportunity for wealth. So, Ven's mother acquiesced to this request. By early summer, Ven laid eyes on Darl for the first time in a year. But, as times go, it happened to be something of an inopportune one. Ven ascertained that his brother had secured employment at the timber mill, a fact that shocked him with the pure incredulity of the prospect. So, before the Hafkin band even finished making camp in a clearing commonly used for just such a purpose, he traipsed alone through the wooded countryside, past fields clear-cut for farming, and other fields restocked with saplings, until he reached the river. Here, he found a circle of brawny frontiersmen exchanging coins, while his brother, naked from the waist up, and his green blooming skin profuse with sweat, fiercely sawed sections of log, one after another. Meanwhile, another man performed the same task, but he was passing his logs through a circular saw blade which spun under the power of the mill's water wheel. It seemed clear to Ven what was going on here. His brother, having grown bored of menial labor, had made some misguided boast, thinking he could earn enough money through competition to live off of for a while without laboring on a daily basis. It was also clear to Ven that his brother was proving himself profoundly wrong. The timberman, working with the aid of mechanization, had piled a stack of logs nearly twice the height of Darl's. This fact was just now dawning on Darl as well, which Ven could see in the grim expression of his brother's face, an expression he knew to portend volatility and often violence. Give it up, half-braid! The competing temperman japed, gesturing at an hourglass, a mere halfway drained. You're clearly spent, and I can do this all afternoon. Darl bared his teeth in a roar, splitting the final inches of a log with a kick of his boot. In the same movement, he grasped an iron-headed mallet and reared up with it. For a second, Ven feared his brother might bludgeon his competitor in an act of rage, but this turned out to be unfounded. Instead, Darl did something almost as stupid. He flung the mallet end over end at the spinning blade. With the shrill scream of metal against metal and the spray of amber sparks, the saw blade ground to a halt. Darl grinned triumphantly at this result, took up his own blade, and set about sawing once more, this time at a more leisurely pace, while the crowd now looked on in dumbfounded silence. Here, perhaps, would be a good point at which to explain a bit about the town of Cascade Rock, as such details are germane to what came next for the Hafkin brothers. A spear of civilization stabbing through the frontier to the very edge of the uncharted wild, Cascade Rock had, for more than a century, stood firm in the high foothills of the mist-shrouded Dawn's Edge Mountains. 
Her most prominent feature was the ancient dam rising like a sheer cliff face from the eastern edge of the small mountain vale. It held back the waters of a deep and tenderly lake in the much more substantial mountain valley above. From the very center of this wall of pale stone, hundreds of feet high, issued the mighty headwaters of the great rushing river. No one in living memory knew who or what built the dam, but its massive mortarless stones suggested the work of some god, or at the very least, giants. A thriving timber industry made its home along the river, there at the base of the fall, utilizing the water flow to motivate its timber mill and to ship logs westward toward the civilized world. That industry provided the foundation for all municipal life in Cascade Rock. The town itself, in an effort to remain close to the mill's hub and to avail itself of the same energy-rich water flow, climbed in switchbacks up the mountain spurs on either side of the dam, its wood and stone structures supported on hefty scaffolding and at points crisscrossing along the face of the dam above the falls. When Darrell willfully and maliciously broke the mechanical saw blade, a piece of equipment of no small importance for the timber mill's operation, a timber mill of no small importance to the town of Cascade Rock and the families making their homes there, the spectating timbermen first fell silent, but then, almost in unison, took up axe handles and, with an outcry of curses, rushed at the massive halfkin. Darrell looked genuinely surprised, perplexed even, by this turn of events. In an effort to gain some higher ground, he scrambled backwards up the pile of logs he had stacked. But the logs turned under his hands and heels, setting off an avalanche of lumber for him to flail upon. Much of the crowd were bowled over by this cascade of wood, but Darl managed to roll to the other side of the stack and land on his feet amidst a number of lumbermen who attempted to detain him from that side. From where Ven stood, watching the tumult, he could just hear his brother's gruff voice making some hasty, half-hearted apology, followed by a roar as someone struck him. After that, Darl's fists were flying every which way, sending men toppling into each other. Ven could see his brother was fighting effectively, if not skillfully, but it was clear he wouldn't last long against so many adversaries. Worse, Ven worried his brother might seriously hurt or even kill someone before they finally subdued him. He whistled a high, piercing series of notes, the same whistle their mother would use to call them as boys. Darl, already ahead above the crowd, turned in his direction. Ven drew a fused bulb from his pouch, lit the fuse, and tossed the bulb into the midst of the melee. It bursted into sparks, then belched yellow smoke, engulfing the scene. Then whistled again, and mere seconds later, Darley emerged from the smoke and embers and scrambled toward him. He wore a grin and threw his arms out to embrace his older, albeit smaller, brother. Then juked him. Let's get back to camp, he said. You brought the band? Great! The smoke was beginning to dissipate. Let's go, Ben insisted. Darl cast a glance at the emerging shapes of angry lumber workers and grimaced. He pointed east, up through the trees, toward the stone face of the dam. We need to go to town, he said. Follow me! And with that, the brute charged into the thicket on a direct route toward the location indicated by his finger. Then cursed under his breath, glanced at the dispersing gas, and then dashed after him.
They emerged from the tree line, where a wide and well-worn road met the city gate. There was no wall around Cascade Rock, but the gate was by no means perfunctory. Indeed, if one wanted to gain admittance to the town by means other than the gate, a steep climb up a treacherous and often sheer rock face would be in order, and that would be defended by intervals of turrets. The gate towers stood on the north bank of the rushing river on either side of the road, the riverside tower jutting out into the swift-moving water. Dense woods butted up against the cliff face on the opposite side of the river. The switchback road did not emerge from the cliff on that side till well above the tree line, and the structures there seemed more hovels than the finer, though rugged, buildings on this side. The city gates stood open, as many do on a midweek afternoon, and the guards loafed on either side of the road, leaning on rusty pikes. They wore matching green frocks, but otherwise had no crest or badge of office and not a scrap of armor between them. The two halfkin approached at a stroll. If it ain't that half-can oaf cutting out a work early, said one of the guards eyeing Darl. What happened to your shirt? Did you wipe your green bum with it while crapping in the woods like a savage? Darl clenched his fists. I did that one time, Bill. One time. That we know of, said the other guard across the way. Darl waved them away sullenly as they passed beneath the portcullis. Hold up. Who's with you? I've never seen this kid before. Uh, Darl intoned, studying his brother as if for an answer. The other guard strutted over, eyeing Ven suspiciously. Ven reached up to feel if his hair still covered his conspicuous ears. Satisfied that they were obscured, he turned to face the guardsman. My name's Danny he said, employing a cultivated pathos-evoking expression in his big, childlike eyes. My family's wagon broke an axle on the road. I was scouting ahead when I ran into this brutish woodsman sawing logs. I was afraid, but felt I had no choice but to go with him. Ah, you scared the poor kid, you ogre, Bill said. Don't worry, kid. He only looks scary. Where are you taking him, Darl? I have kin in town, Ben said. They'll see to my needs. Oh, well, that's a relief. Which family do you belong to? I'm sorry? Who's your kin? Ben opened his mouth to speak, but heard Darl's voice before a suitable lie came out. Amadis the Tinkerer, said Darl. The guardsmen made identical expressions of distaste that they then attempted to suppress for the sake of courtesy. Well, uh, he'll certainly be able to fix your wagon wheel. Carry on. As the brothers turned to go, Ven's keen ears heard one of the guardsmen whisper, If he doesn't burn down the wagon in the process, which was followed by the snort of a concealed laugh from the other. Dare I ask who this Amadis is? Ven said as they mounted a flight of stone steps. Local kook, Darl replied. Don't worry about it. At the top of the granite steps, the road slanted northward. On the right, facades of wood and brick stood out from the rock wall, providing an inviting front to the stores and homes carved into the stone mountainside. On the left side of the road, timber-framed structures clung to the edge of the cliff on thick, beamed trusses. This first stretch of road was marked by a signpost reading, Rainbow Way. Its cobblestones were wet with the mist of the falls, and Darl explained it was so named because of the spectrum of colors visible at certain hours of the day. 
Here were mostly storefronts and warehouses, but on the road above, they could see the wooden platforms of homes supported on beams sunk into the rock. The people milling about their business on the street were of a varied stock. Frontiers men and women from all across the empire of man come to explore and cultivate the wild world with freedom and independence. The one unifying feature they all possessed was a hardy constitution. Ben found himself idly fretting about what these doughy folk would do when roused to anger against his brother's wanton act of vandalism. He hoped to have obtained what Darl needed and to be long gone by then. Ben's anxiety grew after the first three switchbacks. He looked up at the underside of the platforms above and said, How many switchbacks are there? Darl touched his thumb to his forefinger, momentarily as if he were about to count on one hand, but then he shrugged and said, I don't know, we're going about halfway, then crossing over the falls. Ben nodded, thinking of the rickety-looking wooden scaffolding he'd seen crossing the face of the dam to the south side. Right, he said, and what's over there that you need so bad? Darl's eyes lit up. He grinned and put a finger to his lips, leaning down toward his brother. A map, he said. It's a good thing you brought the band, because there's a lot of writing on it I can't read. I'm thinking Mama or Old Man Gart will have some inside, though. Ben stopped still in the street. Someone bumped into him, hustling past. A map, then spat. Darl, having taken several steps ahead of his brother, turned and rushed back to him. Shh! Keep your voice down! We are running from an angry mob of woodsmen, Darl, and you've led us into a city with only one way in or out, and you've done this so that we can retrieve a piece of parchment? Does that seem like a smart idea to you? Or maybe, just maybe, once again, you're misusing your adult orc brain. Hey! Darl shouted. I'm not an orc. You snooty little tree-hugging twerp. If I were, I would have gutted you the moment I popped out of Mama's womb. Ben's eyes went as hard and sharp as blades. Yeah, I'd like to see you try, you dumb green mastodon. Exhaling through his nostrils like a caged beast, Darl set his ferocious gaze upon his brother for a mere moment before saying, Fine, I'll retrieve the treasure without you, and then turned to stomp away up the sloping road. And there's not just one way in or out of Cascade Rock, he called over his shoulder. So look who's stupid now. Ben stood a moment, watching his brother walk away. Then he cursed and dashed off after him for the second time that day. They walked on in silence until they came to the sixth switchback, and Darl shuffled out onto the wood planks of a narrow catwalk hanging against the stone, mere feet above the opening in the dam's center, from which the white water gushed out in roaring, misting jets to fall many hundred feet to the narrow valley below. Ben stopped at the first step, frowning down at the space between wood slats. He looked up at his brother's broad, bare shoulders, bobbing away. Then he swallowed and took a tentative step. The plank held. He breathed deep and took another step. A second later, he found himself charging with delicate foot placements across the walk. As long as I don't stop, he told himself, I'll be on the other side of this death trap in no time. But stop he did. At the dead center of the crossing, with the fall booming directly below, its spray washing up and soaking everything around, Ben found Darl blocking his path. What are you doing? 
he hissed frantically above the din. Darl wore the childlike wonder on his face that he had never quite lost over the years. Look, he said, gesturing away west. I wanted to show you this. It's amazing. Then set his back against the smooth stone face of the dam. It was wet and warm from the sun. He forced his eyes wide, taking in the landscape, falling away from them, endless green ripples rolling into the horizon. Look down, his brother said, pointing toward the base of the dam. Then gingerly drew his eyes down across the wooded valley and winding silver watercourses, past the fields of new-growth trees and clear-cut farms in the nearby country to an open park where twelve wagons had circled up at the base of the dam and established a new camp. His Hafkin band were making themselves at home where they had no home. He breathed deep the moisture-rich air, seeing his people so far below, small wanderers scrabbling about the surface of the world, reminded him of why he had come to so remote a region. It was for family, for a halfkin in need. In that instant, he resolved that whatever it was Darl wanted to share with him, he'd be there to help. He let go of his anger. But then, movement on the road caught his eyes. A mob approached the town's gate. All Ven's frustration with his brother came flooding back. Your friends are on their way, he said over the din of the water. Looks like they brought their axes. Darl's shoulders slumped. Hmm, I thought they'd have gotten over it by now. You broke the mill, Darl. What did you expect? All right, I get it, I'm sorry, but we gotta get that map. Sure, Ven groaned. Lead on. Thanks for listening to Lies and Half-Truths. This episode was written and performed by A.P. Weber and produced by Meg Weber. Our theme was provided by Josiah Martins. Original music by Weep Bar. Musical production help from Mackenzie Stubbard. Consider liking, sharing, or reviewing this podcast wherever you listen to it. You can also support me, A.P. Weber, on Patreon. In any case, please join us again next time for more lies and half-truths.